up here. This uh, this is you're on point. What are we? Six? November sixth. November sixth, and what is it? Ninth day. Ninth day. Ninth day. Did we say that already, or did you no. just unpause it? November sixth, nineteen seventy-seven. Ninth day. Oral inter oral history interview by Jim McQuaid of International Museum of Photography, George Eastman House, accompanied by Elaine King, assisting her. How's that? Something sounds fine. All right. Okay, so what you have on that slide is one of the earliest pictures in photography. It's yaps looking out the window. Yeah. Now what I have here is just a kind of a once over lightly survey of things. Now we've talked an awful lot about the history so far. And this is just a thing that I've been showing in the interview sort of for the heck of it to see what response I get. My question generally when I show this and my question to you which has already been answered in large measure is how did you become aware of these things? Did it, was it important to you to know about them? You've really answered that pretty well. And so maybe just go through and when we get to some of the more modern things you can comment on some of the people. Okay. You know, but let's just go through it and if you have any special... It's also a test whether I'm a graduate student or not. It's a test. Well, no, you, you'll know all these. That's I mean, do good. I get in your program or not? <laughs> Will Peter Bunnell allow me to... You have to score above 85% Will Peter Bunnell or Van Deren Koch allow me to take my doctorate? Incidentally, Beaumont and I served at Northwestern as a part of an examining committee many years ago. The guy that's at the Metropolitan... Uh, Neff? No. Uh, I can't remember his name. And at the end... Not uh, the 20th century guy there. I no, think Henry... So. Uh, Not Henry Gelzeller. No, he, he uh, lectures there. Anyway. Very good. Anyway, at the end, um, he or somebody else says, well, why don't you uh, get your doctorate you know, in photography? And I said, well, who's there to examine me? There wasn't anybody examining. I mean, Beaumont knew a great deal of factual things, you see, but in terms... I mean, Beaumont and I were there because there wasn't anybody that knew anything about the history of yeah. photography. Well, that's including true. Including the person who's got his PhD. Well, this is a, the reason I've been showing this to people in interviews is partly because the consciousness that there even is a history is a, developed in the last couple of decades for in any kind of cohesive way. That's right. As I said when we weren't recording, that's why these jerks that attack Beaumont Newall just don't know the importance of Beaumont Newall. Beaumont made a history where none existed at all. And so the, that's, like I say, the question, you know, in something like this Daguerre is yeah, this well, kind of thing. That's very exciting to me. I talk about it. I have several slides of this, including close-ups to the, the, the uh, man getting his shoe polished, but more important than that, there are some other pictures that were taken from the same point of view. Mm. Uh, and my, the question I asked my graduate students is, when were they taken? What time of the day? So start getting them involved. From internal evidence, uh, how can you... From internal evidence, how can you prove when they were taken? Yeah. So it's kind of exciting. Yeah. Here's and Bayard. This is... Polite and his great uh, metaphor of self pity. Yeah. And he really was quite uh, taken can't. advantage of, I think. He had a legitimate complaint. I, this, this is quite funny. I think he had a, quite a sense of humor to me. To portray himself this yeah, way. To portray yeah. himself is just tragic. Yeah, he did get kind of shunted aside by the he did. French yeah. establishment. Another. And this is, you know, on the classic Fox Talbot. Nice slide, I must say. At least to see the interior, most reproduction to see. Let me, uh, let's see, we are still have this Fox Talbot okay. on the screen. Fox Talbot and uh, with the broom. And uh, the amazing thing is the quality of these, uh, even though they look contrasting. I've never seen any originals, so I really don't know. I have the slightest idea. I've Actually, never seen from this. the reproductions, see just how contrasting they were. I understand a lot of them are fading and are contrasting, but at any point were there any that, you know, were full-tone gradations? I think they probably were. Seems reasonable, yeah. If they well, I have some, uh, you know, some reproductions where there's full-tonal scale. This, what's remarkable about this is the fact that there is so much detail in terms of the high contrast that sunlight gives you.
That's true, yeah. Apparently it's a very long scale material. That's right. Yeah, and this is a very good slide. Nobody's ever remarked on it, you know, who actually knew. Now, Gail Buckland is doing a book on Fox Talbot, a new book on Fox Talbot, and I see they're about to exploit, as I thought she and some other, and the Royal Photographic Society is going to do. They have an American connection now in New York. You know about that? Yeah, and so she's going to do this Fox Talbot thing, and they're going to start issuing stuff, and one of them is this Von Gloden, no, I'm not familiar with him. This is a guy that did a bunch of pictures of young boys all dressed up with uh, uh, flowers in their hair, with flutes and Oh, you remarked about this. Uh, That's right. So they've one of their the first thing among the first couple books that they've issued is uh, this Ron Gloden thing, you know, and this, they're all. Um, you know, hmm. they have a mark of gaze and yeah. history of photography now and male nudes. Really, yeah. Uh, doing it. This is just a Mrs. Mrs. by Mr. Uh, it's daguerreotype. Uh, it's kind of a characteristic in many ways. Yeah, well, you know, what was amazing was the beauty of the daguerreotype, along with its absolutely fragility, its absolute fragility. Uh, and the whole range of traditions that came through in the daguerreotype, whether it was a popular, whether it was really high styling uh, painting, miniature painting, uh, and the fact, you know, that the daguerreotype represented the first time that there was a fairly reasonable kind of halftone type portraiture. Before that, it got, sure, there was a great uh, explosion of silhouette making. Mm -hmm. Fairs and every place traveling silhouette makers. But that was the first time somebody could actually get a half tone. In the British sense of the word half tone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, Gray. Middle tone. Middle tone. Yeah. 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 This is an anonymous uh, thing of Stephen Douglas. Yes. Nice mat around this. Well, it's uh, curious. That could very well be a Southworth and Watts. Could be. Yeah, I don't know. It's in fact, now that I see it, you know, it'd be interesting to see how closely the Southworth and Hawes chair out of focus looked like that. Yeah, I don't know. This is a very bad slide. No, I've never seen. This actually is a Southworth and Hawes, I is believe. It? And it looks to me, without ever having seen it, the father with a dead child. Yeah, I mean, of course. Yeah. It's a typical type of a image that was right. made um, at that time. That's quite interesting. You know, it illustrates the changing values of death, attitudes towards death. You know, has really shifted radically in America. Uh, this was very common. And there are a lot of pictures of so-called postmortems, thousands yeah. of them. And I myself, you see, as a young man, young photographer, photographs several dead Italian babies as late for the as, families. Uh huh. As late as you know, in the 30s, because the kid died, and uh, they didn't have a picture of. Yeah, and there's there's a, some movement I think not very uh, successful in the part of like wedding photographers to add funeral photography as a thing. And I have actually in a commercial lab seen you know sets of prints that were from funerals done almost as if it were a wedding. If you can imagine, <laughs> a pretty pretty yeah, horrendous. Yeah, people gathered uh, around the coffin. In See, color, the coffin really was open. Yeah. For quite frequently. I mean, I went to wakes where the coffin was open. Uh, I never saw that. This is in uh, Rudisell's book. It's a plate it? out of his book. Oh, I can't remember. I don't remember it. Yeah. And this is good old Hill. Yeah. Now, what's significant about that? To your way of thinking. Let's see if you could be a graduate <laughs> student. Wait a minute. I'm not the one. I know oh, you're not the interview. What are you? Well, I think it's a very interesting picture. I mean, I you know I think it's it a, it's, it's got this kind of thunder light portrait here, and it was done outdoors. It's a classical and it painterly is a thing. portrait. Now, what's interesting about it? is the fact that it's entirely a hand-manipulated image. See, there are other versions of this where this background is not manipulated. Doesn't highlight him quite so That's dramatically. That's right. You yeah. see, this is in the traditional Rembrandt portraiture of the mm -hmm. lost and found outline, and it is a painterly portrait. I've always wondered about Addison's role in all this. That's the... Who? Adamson, you know. Oh, Adamson, I doubt very much by the evidence of how this was manipulated and the consistency of these pictures 
Uh, I don't think Adamson's role was that great. He was a superb technician, but it's so clear, both in the painting, which resembles the photographs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the photographs which resemble the traditional portrait painting, and he was the carrier of that tradition, so I think it's perfectly clear that this yeah. is a painterly portrait of photography. Now I got it. Maxime Decamp, probably. Or Francis oh, Frith. Could be Francis Frith. This, yes. this one happens to be the Frith, but right. it's a little less harsh, but in the slide you can't really be sure. Mm -hmm. And I've also got another Frith, one of my favorites. Yeah, of mine too. If you listen to my tape on Frith, yeah, you'll. It's going to pop here. In a second. I have a whole series of these things. And, uh, Barnes did me a painting for my birthday one time. With the Sphinx in it up there, yeah. yeah. So you had a chance They're a whole series of uh, this. Uh, yeah, this different is pyramids. This is really a beautiful uh, thing. I too, love those because it's really big. Yeah. Have you seen Joel Snyder's new album prints? From the Chicago Albumin Works, and mm -hmm. also this arrowroot from the Janet Lair negatives. Mm -hmm. They're incredible, really beautiful. Now, so we'll jump into the future by going backwards, right? This is Baldus. Baldus, yeah. I'm not too familiar with his work, you know, excepting to know that he did a lot of architectural photography. And, yeah, that's a really about all I know. That's, a, you know, probably if you were at George Eastman House, then you'd Could be find out a lot more, more aware of him. But I'm aware and so on. And there were a whole bunch of architectural photographers working at that point, you know, trying to document the change and uh, actually were under the direction of Violette Le Duc. Yeah, the, the, the whatever it's called, Monument Restore Historique or whatever. This is Nagra. Well, here's Nagra and it's, you know, interesting because it's kind of stopping motion and we know that it was taken with a, you know, longer focal length lens because the thing is totally out of focus, even though it's out in sunlight. But it is, does have a semblance of motion, which is kind of interesting at that time. Uh, and the whole conquest of motion is, uh, you know, comes out in very strange places. Mm -hmm. I love this distortion, or the way the lens... And the aberration. The aberration yeah. here is really wonderful in yeah. the background. Yeah. And here is the Great Valley after the battle at, uh, Sevastopol, is it? Uh, some, somewhere in that vicinity, yeah. the Crimean in general. Yeah, it's Sevastopol. And uh, there are all these shells lying around, and, you know, they s kept shooting uh, cannonballs at each other. Now, these are reputed to be among the first war pictures, and the real question that one of my students might solve someday is whether, in fact, the uh, Mexican war pictures were the first, or whether that's all fake, or, mm -hmm. you know. It's yeah, it was a, a couple question. years before. Real question. Well, it's not even sure that those pictures were taken in the Mexican War. I've actually tried talk to Andy's wife. Uh, Andy Eskin? Yeah. Uh, I have a daguerreotype, which may be a portrait of a Mexican-American soldier at the time. Because it doesn't seem to be a civil war, and yet it's... Mm -hmm. So what is it then? Yeah, that would be the logical thing and around the, the time. Again, like, because I don't have the time, I've never really pursued it through the War Department. But that would make a perfectly good article, you see, for somebody to do. Yeah, true enough, though. There's hundreds of things like that that yeah. could be tracked down. Now, here's the classic... Uh, yeah, the classic fake war photograph. <laughs> right. And, you know, as I keep telling you, the two great war photographs in the history of photography are both fakes. What, the other one being Joe Rosenthal's? Yeah. yeah. And that's something that only Arthur Siegel would point out as a historian. See, oh, there's been all this jazz about this stuff. Nobody's ever mentioned that it was a yeah. fake until fairly recently. Yeah, see. it's really been documented yeah. recently that the body is, exists in two other photographs right. in a and different location. At the other end of this place, see, about 70 yards, I guess it was. Yeah. And this picture has actually been printed in reverse in some history books. Yeah, little details. Uh, there are but other it, things like it, the two versions of this. His head is in a different place, and in one case, there's some cloth underneath. Blanket they dragged him on us underneath. And in this one, there's not. So well, it's, it's really fake. It's still a statement about the war, though, which is yeah, interesting. That's that's different than the whole idea that photographers or the historians have tried to promulgate that these were reality pictures. You see, 
this was a still life, if you want to put it that well, way. Well, this is a reality in the same way that the pictures of Barbara with the projections are. That's right. The straight I mean, it's photographs. Period. Well, you see, then that's what I've constantly fought against all these idiots. The, the photograph, they keep talking about truth, for instance. There's no truth in a photograph. There's just the photograph, and you, whatever you put into it, you know, from your head, it's like any other image. And I differ from Susan Sontag, too, you see. I mean, she talk, keeps talking about the reality of the photograph and its truth as compared to painting. Well, at the time, they really did think those paintings of angels were real. You know, medieval times, and so on. I mean, Vermeer paintings, by God, were believed by the people that they were... Those were the people. Mm -hmm. I mean, the same relationship that photographs have to people observing yeah. them. I don't think there's any difference. This is another uh, Sullivan, yeah. Sullivan picture, and uh, taken in that period, uh, probably July 6th. Uh, and what you have are, again, the interesting set of thing about this set of pictures is the fakery of the photography photographer because they saw pictures that were taken right here from different points of view with different captions on them. As representing various different aftermaths. Yeah. <laughs> Getting their money's worth out of this right. one. So one. That's <laughs> totally, see, fake. In the sense that it's not the reality. It's a perfectly good photograph, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the same. And they, would, you know, when they talk about art, that was the farthest thing from their minds. Money was in commerce. Money. Was it was a, they were in business to make money. This is another Sullivan of the Western yeah, landscape this, things. Well, this is actually Grand Canyon. No. One of the entrances. I think it's the entrance to Canyon de Chez. Is Canyon that possible? De Chez, Canyon, Canyon, Canyon de Chez. Yeah, Canyon, Canyon de Chez. Sorry. Uh, yeah, beautiful thing. Steichen, I think, photographed the same. Something very something similar. Something similar to that. I think that was the Garden of the Gods up in near. Uh, yeah. Denver. Yeah, nice negative space thing. Right. This guy. Uh, taken, that's what this coming up lecture is. And, you know, the whole dealing. Now, did they do that consciously, use negative space? Well, they, it was there. They saw it. That's about all you can do. Well, they organized their picture to fit in that frame. Yeah. Here's a uh, Jackson. Yeah. With a man for scale here of the... Well, it wasn't only Jackson, it was everybody. Well, yeah, that's the classic thing, of course, yeah. to use the man. Like, well, the Frith we looked at earlier has a little right. man in it. Right, that's what I show. I show yeah. all the Frith pictures, it's usually somebody. Here's a more sort yeah. of... That's the, the uh, Old Faithful here. Old Faithful Jackson thing. <laughs> Funny, shown very frequently, cropped. See, I make my students, when they make the slides, unlike yours, which are less disturbing to view, I make them show the edges of the picture, so you, at least you know whatever the cropping was. Mm -hmm. Whereas with this, I don't trust you. Right. I find the best way is if you can leave a little. That's right. So you have a little, little white space. That's all right. Right. But these from the art historians, you see, again, we deal with a few pictures and deal with pictures that are in frames and so on. Uh, they do what you do. Yeah, mask and the slide. Mask the slide. Well, I, I, I do it when I have time, and when I have more time, I do it better. And <laughs> yeah. They vary wildly. Some you of these are just masked. Mr. What, Eastlake? Well, it could be. This is actually someone named Curry. It's just representative yeah. of this kind of yeah. uh, still life a la Harnett, almost. Uh, right, it was very typical of the painting that went on, full, sort of fully eye painting, very meticulously drawn and painted, you know, trying to be very realistic. Now, whether it was trying to be photographic, by that time the photograph was, you know, a little fairly available as an idea. Uh, I don't think so, because there were things like this long before the photograph. It just fitted in, you know, was mm -hmm. part of it. But I don't think, in essence, that, uh, you see, there was any difference in the thinking whether they're making a photograph here they were. The photographers were imitating the paintings, the painters were imitating the photographers. It was part of one movement for image making. And that's where I disagree with a lot of people who try to claim one or claim the other was one or the other. I don't was, believe it. Yeah. I believe you live in an age and everything, you know, works together. Certain ideas are being put forth by different people in different right. ways. There may be some, you know, going away because of one medium or another, like uh, I think the discovery of Impressionism was probably 
very much aided and abetted by a reaction against the fine detail of the photograph, but very much aided and abetted by scientific discoveries about the way the eye functions of being able to fuse little color dots into a third color. And much more important than photography. Yeah. You know, it's funny, as I've looked at this over a couple of years, first I was sort of looking at it as a example of a degenerate way of going about it. And then the more I've looked at it, the more I like it, actually. Oh, it's very beautiful. <laughs> that it really, yeah, you know, yeah. what happens in the wing here see, really is beautiful. The only difference, you see, what, what one of the great uh, things about modern photography, which I keep talking about, is that you go from certainty to ambiguity. And to make this into a modern photograph, all you do is take away some of the certainty Mm -hmm. Namely, a modern photographer like Edward Weston will take and photograph just the wing, the thing. wing, which he did. You see, right? Yeah. So that it wasn't particularly a bird that he was interested in. He was interested in the visual formation and the, uh, you know, what could be seen there. What could be seen? Yeah. No. Well, of course. What can we say about this? Well, a great deal. This is by Carjat. Carjat. I don't know my French. You know. Terrible. But this is fascinating. See, in comparison to the Nadar photographs of Baudelaire, the lighting is totally different, very soft. Now, the question, and this is the Nadar lecture that did not get recorded because of this oh. thing, was I took all the Nadar things and used them as an example of all the problems of portraiture, photographing portraiture. And uh, then I used a number of other. Uh, photographers at the time to see, and these are just probes, um, see whether in fact the poses, say, were due to Nadar, were they due to the tradition, you know, or were they idiosyncratic to the person. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a fascinating lecture. I'm so sorry that I had never got recorded. Uh, but starting from some dumb picture like that, mm -hmm. uh, you see, the beauty of my history is it goes off and it really doesn't matter where you come in in one sense. I mean, you can find all you want of the data, which is what most people who don't know what they're talking about rely on. Just like you can always tell a bad photography teacher, you put something on the board, you know, that you can find in Eastman Kodak books. They spend all their time putting formulas on or explaining mm -hmm. lenses. That's terrible teaching. Just terrible teaching. Well, that on the same the way, class. no, no. Well, I mean, I think, you know, like David teaches uh, advanced techniques. I mean, that's what the whole class is about. I know. People come there for that purpose. I object to their separation of technique from aesthetics that Columbia does. I think that's stupid. Um, well, there's a lot of material in books. That's right. Certainly. That's and he could take and pass it all out, have a mimeograph. Well, I don't know, that's a little discussion. I, I personally think I understand the way the course is taught, and there are certain things that cannot just, I don't think most students can just figure out certain things without doing the exercises. The class is taught in conjunction with the class called View Camera, which I know. is our teaching. I know. And then the other class is a lecture. Yeah. And I, I, I do think that uh, sort of a guided, guided exercise through zone system and densitometry and optics. I don't know, I myself think the value of course. Um, we teach all students, that stuff. But most students would not uh, do the things without being guided through it. Right. Most students are intimidated by that subject. And you realize that most of the photographs and great photographs and photography were made without any knowledge of the zone system. <laughs> no, but I think, you know, for those no, who No, it's a very it's limiting not. thing. It's also a limiting thing. For those who need to use it. That's right. All right, Margaret Julia Cameron. One of my favorite pictures in the whole world. Very marvelous portraitist. Uh, a great example of uh, confused taste. I mean, on the one hand, great portraits. Right, and then on the other on hand. On the other hand, apps. Well, that's very pre-Raphaelite. Yeah, this is even uh, titled The Pre-Raphaelite Study. Uh, well, this isn't even so bad. There are others uh, that there are. There are others much worse. I mean, real kitschy kinds of things. So... Uh, but t today, no one distinguishes, you know, with auctions. If it's the name is on Margaret Julia Cameron, you know, it commands a high price. But some of the things are great, and others are terrible. In terms, if you have a value system, other than antique, antique yeah, that's virtue, right. right? Yeah. 
And are you coming? I'm discussing that, that thing. I have, we teach the zone system. They, 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 well, but the unit is much more than zone system. It's a very, you know, No, but the point is, is you, can, to, you can teach technique for 4,000 years and not make a photographer. It's easy to teach technique. It's impossibly difficult to teach students how to make pictures. Yeah, but this is only one course out of many, many. Most of the courses at Columbia are, are just aesthetic, and I think this course is valuable, especially for students who want to do any kind of commercial work, and I think this is maybe one of the saving courses at Columbia, that a person who does master this course can get some kind of a job when they get out of there, besides making aesthetic, you know. Our students have gotten jobs in commerce and never knew the zone system. I mean, that's all very, very late, you see, in the Ansel Adams system, and it's also very confining. But see, I mean, of course, a very minor part of it. And incidentally, you don't need David to learn the zone system. Anybody that can read, again, if they can read, they can read Mansell Adams or Minor White or Zach, yeah. I mean, but what I'm trying to say, Arthur, is that the zone system is the most minuscule part of the course. I mean, it really is giving students a uh, certain sense of being able to master a viewcamera. And many of those students have gone out and got really good architectural yeah. jobs and commercial jobs as a result of mastering that camera. So the zone system is a minor, minor part. Yeah, well, that's different than what you were saying, you see, before. Well, I mean, if they are part. able to, you know, get an, an architectural assignment and do it, that's something else in the zone system. Well, I mean, like I said, the course is many, many things. Okay. All right, let, we'll talk about that right. later. All right, so this is uh, obsessions, you know, <laughs> in search of an image. <laughs> and the whole psychological part of photography, which is so important, which, again, nobody has dealt with at all. Oh, Lewis Carroll knew what he liked. That's right. Yeah. And his motto is, there's, there, none of them are too young. Yeah. Now here's the one of the classics. Yeah. And uh, so this is a tradition that, you know, people like A.D. Coleman are, and uh, I suppose Fred Summers, if he knew it. And I doubt whether Fred even knows that much history. Uh, but certainly this is the same kind of uh, thing that Fred Summers did and, you know, objected, I guess, that Beaumont objected. As near as I can tell. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, of course, it's the idea of putting pieces of images together to construct a new one. This being very much absolutely typical of Victorian painting at the time, sentimental, uh, dealing with purely sent sentimentality, and uh, you know, very low down. Very much in contrast to the revolutions that were taking place in painting in France and. Mm -hmm. a little bit in England. I mean, this is very old-fashioned imagery at the time. And yet it's only in photography that it became so important. Yeah, even more hokey on that school is, of course, the yeah. Rylander. Right, and the two versions of the Rylander. And it was interesting, you know, that this was very much affected, you know, by the teachings of Thomas Couture. And uh, there are the two versions of this thing, you know, and at one time in Edinburgh, they. Should, they also wanted to exhibit this, so they hung a curtain over the dissolute the half. Dissolute half. Yeah. And there are many, several variations of this. But it's interesting that uh, Queen Victoria bought this for the Prince Consort, you know, and reputedly hung in Buckingham Palace, or one of the palaces, for many yeah. years. It has since disappeared. Well, here's Taroni. Yeah. Well, there again, which is a whole area which has suddenly popped up as being important. There were always theatrical photographers all along, and yet they were not considered as art photographers. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, people have discovered the areas of fashion. They've also discovered the area of the actor. The photographs of Cerrone and even Nadar, in a sense, is part of that discovery, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of theater photographers. Now, this is just a, this is not by anybody especially well yeah, known. I don't know this. But it's just to okay, just a pot to stand for a kind of a genre yeah, photograph it's storytelling, and it probably had a title. Yeah, the broken saucer. This is yeah. by a man named Wellington from well, 1890. Typical pictorial photography. You see the whole continuum. It's his storytelling, his sen kitsch, sentimentality, and uh, this was what continued on in the camera clubs. And this is the tradition that Stieglitz did not work in. You see, this is this tradition that. Gertrude Casimir and Eichmeier went on in. This and is the one Stiglitz came out of. That's right, but that was the measure of his greatness that he broke, broke from it. And this is, of course, P.H. Emerson, who was able to take, you know, and fight 
against the kind of paced up montage sentimentality. These are, in a real sense, one of the real documentary studies. But they were done with one eye on art. I mean, it's very art conscious and mm -hmm. uh, beautifully printed. I have seen some of the platinum prints of this, and they are wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's very nice. Thing. And just as a, this, this mybridge, the cards that were widely distributed all over the United States, uh, which showed the horse. The important picture there are the the ones with the third, well, second and third, really. With the legs the off third, the ground. Right, the legs off the ground. And the fact that there's one other important thing that this proves. Do you know what it is? Well, the the other, I mean, the contradiction, I, I'm not sure I do know, the contradiction of this being that, that the, it was always assumed that when they were off the ground, the legs would all be out. Yeah, right, the rocking horse position, you see, which yeah. painters had always painted. And so this is one example of the photographer correcting the previous reality. Not that the others don't work, you see. Right, yeah, that's a workable pictorial tradition, that's but right. this just suggests Stephane, a different... Even after this was discovered, I can show you examples a painting. of the painting that were done the other way. Yeah, yeah. well, it looked, it had a certain look in a painting. Yeah. Well, this is typical funny this is just snapshot a, out of yeah. somebody's album or some anonymous picture. And it's uh, just darling and... Uh, the revolution that Eastman started with right. a... This was probably taken with one of those... Uh, the bullseye, yeah. To, uh, you yeah. press the button, we do the rest. Right. And, uh, and kind of verging on in towards the turn of the century here. Yeah, we have. Reese. Reese. And uh, the marvelous part of it was that he knew what he was trying to show and seemed to have a very good sense of image. Yeah, a very strong journalistic experience before he even began to do the pictures, I guess. Oh, absolutely. These pictures were made to illustrate what he was trying to write about. And he, you know, they were done with flash and they're terrific, just terrific. But they're full-bodied, full-toned images. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing, of course, was <clears throat> these pictures, when they were first published, were published in the form of woodcuts. Woodcuts, right, in the, from the... Because uh, it wasn't possible. It wasn't to, possible, so it wasn't until later that... They had the force. He became, no, he became known as a photographer. Yeah. Is it wood engravings and not woodcuts? The fine lines of wood engravings. Well, whatever. A wood block of some kind, yeah. Well, it's really important, though, because it was wood engraving, I think. Well, we could look it up, whatever it was. Well, Mr. Jevons, you know, just had the terrific reputation. And Sir, this is one of his more abstract things. Yeah, more, most of them are more more uh, architectural, architectural in the sense renditions of, of including more. Yeah. Here it's more, more like a light modular. He's interested in the rhythms of these, uh, the steps and the stonework and uh, the play of light you know, on the steps. Yeah. This is uh, well, an this example is the of degradation. Yeah, photography, again, to my way of thinking. See, even though these are extremely valuable, this is photography going to hell. It's typical. Not uh, you see what's why it's so lousy is because it's imitating a very cheap tradition in painting. Being what a sort of poster uh, tradition. Sort of a poster, but corny, anecdotal kind of painting. Which mm -hmm. by the time this was being done, you already had Cezanne. You know, you had Monet, Manet. Do you feel this has any relation to like Toulouse-Lautrec kind of rendering? the sort of outline or the character? Not very good, yes. It has a very distant relationship. But when you look at Toulouse's work, you know, and his posters, wow! They're yeah. powerful in comparison to this. He uses near and far, for instance. They're very liquid, know, too. Top and, and the bottom. I mean, this is just very flat and corny. It's terrible. It's kitsch. And this is Clarence White, you know, interested in the, in the lovely effects of light in Ohio, and the thing that intrigues me, which again, nobody has ever mentioned, are those goddamn glass balls. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they are I, many I photographers. Say, Clarence White kept using them. And yeah, the fishing net. What are they? See, it's not unimportant. It's important to know why those glass balls, what they were, why they were used, and I've done enough to find them in paintings, you see. Right. In cheap paintings. There were a whole series of People when I was at Ohio University, 
who were sort of for funny reasons were using these glass balls and also a, a mirrored one, a silvered one, yeah. um, kind of as a joke about Clarence White in Southern Ohio, uh-huh. you know, in, in yeah. some of the pictures they were making. Yeah, but the real question was, why did he use them? Where did they come from? What is their symbolic meaning? Where did it, you know, did it come out of painting or what? Yeah, or maybe a sort of a Japanese re kind of a, I don't know, kind of a thing. Well, this is one of my favorite painting <laughs> paintings. <laughs> Gertrude Casimir. Gertrude Casimir, and uh, spent a lot of time on this photograph, thinking about it. And uh, you remember the title of it? Um, Yes, I do. Blessed Thou Art Among Women. Right. What does it mean? Isn't it related to, wasn't it originally a picture story for, or an illustration of a story for McClure's Magazine or someone like that? Yeah, it was something like that. But what is that reference? What does that mean? I've always taken that to mean that, that this, I, well, I've always assumed this is a little girl. It is. Who is, you know, has all the advantages, as we would say, and that that's part of the, you know, the mother's love the nice home, etc., and that's, that's been my... Um, Why is the woman in such a loose outfit? Is she pregnant, maybe? Hmm. What does this have to do with Catholic liturgy? Well, when you take my course, you'll when I take a much course. better understanding of the iconology of this image. Okay, and of course, the steerage. Well, there's a steerage, which I think is one of the great photographs. Uh, not for a lot of the reasons that are stated, you know, about Stieglitz's great love for humanity. Uh, yeah, we've certainly Stieglitz been pretty well established. Very, very elitist kind of person, and uh, he was making pictures again. And uh, I think it's a very important picture. Yeah. I love, and particularly the way he used the negative positive space, which my students learn a great deal about. Uh, how to see, you know, in terms of the establishment of visual patterns. Yeah, and this, of course, was sort of retroactively adopted into the Cubist idea afterwards by Stieglitz several years later. Yeah. You know, sort of glommed that onto it. Well, I don't know on that, uh, those laws that I gave you to copy. Right. You can also, I don't think it's on there, but I'm one of the Stieglitz laws, all photographers are liars. Yeah, that's on there. Is it? Well, but that has a double meaning, you see. One, that the photograph, all photographs are lies, and two, that photographers do lie. Like Stiglitz later claiming the Cubist heritage, sort of, in terms of this, even though when he first made it, he wasn't aware of it. You mean that kind of a thing? Yeah. Yeah. But photographers do all the time. You must not believe what photographers say, including me. Yeah. That's the paradox. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'm distributing grains of salt uh, to everyone well, who comes if you to listen to what... To graduate students say about how they got to their pictures five years after they've left the school, mm-hmm. you're just amazed and astounded. You know, how they came to their work. That's one of the reasons I've kept these tapes up there, and they'll be quite fascinating, you know, as time goes on. Of the seminars, you mean? Well, the personal interviews. Yeah, true. Well, here we have Louis Hine, you know, sneaking in the factories under false pretenses and showing the <laughs> child labor. And they are neat pictures. He I can is a neat photographer. I can remember knowing this picture in the in the sixth grade in a social studies book, yeah. and later seeing it when I became interested in photography and saying, "Oh yeah, that's what that is," you know, because it's such a, it just really stayed with me. Yeah. Well, I grew up on knowing Louis Hines' pictures and Jacob Reese uh, because I read the Survey Graphic, and they were always printing those pictures. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was not an unknown photographer at any point. Right, if you were involved in any kind of sociology type things, well, too, no, you'd run across it. This was in uh, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. As a matter of fact, I took a course there in the library, something or other, learning how to use the library. And I remember one of the magazines that we dealt with was a survey graphic. As a periodical and yeah. how to use it sort of a thing. Yeah. Huh. Well, again, this is very marvelous kind of break from the past mm-hmm. by Paul Strand. It's uh, still kind of fuzzy, was he? Paul quite hasn't broken from the past in terms of his technique. At this point? At this point, yeah. But the seeing is very contemporary of the time. He's, mm-hmm. He is aware by now of the Cubist revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, and there is no uh, 
the fact of using the edge of the picture, you know, the parallel lines, the fence, and the tremendous contrast there, um, and no particular center of interest, so-called, which he was very prone to do beforehand. This is the beginning of the end of the center of interest concept, right. in a sense. Yeah. Well, those are very important, Mr. I know it's yeah. pockmarked slide, but it's a... Yeah, well, I know these. Well, these are fascinating. Everybody lumps them all together, and what I've tried to do is get them as many as I could and differentiate and... Different and, types of these. Uh -huh. They're all different, and everybody screwed up the whole idea of equivalence, so including minor white. Uh, but I don't think, if a student understands what an equivalent is, it's a miracle. How do you differentiate among them? By what types of values are you looking for? Well, psychological interpretations and relating them to various uh, other kinds of aspects. Uh, what was happening? See, they're not the same. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. You've picked out some of my very favorite pictures. <laughs> I like your choice of slides. This is... Probably my favorite portrait of Steichen's, of Gloria Swanson. I, I thought for for one picture of Steichen that had to have some of the commercial and some of the pictorial yeah. uh, qualities that this was a good good choice. Well, that is a terrific picture. It doesn't have the light uh, that Steichen is so famous for manipulating, but uh, as a uh, you know the close-up kind of thing, the directness and the combination of the two, the head and the uh, kind of strange uh, tattoo-like effect of the veiling. Uh, it's a fantastic image, and certainly one of his greatest portraits. I've always loved this. And done as a commercial thing? Done as something to be published. I mean, the first rule of a photojournalist, whether you're working for Condé Nast or, or uh, PM or... Uh, Time. The, Time or whatever, is the picture has to be interesting enough to take up that space. If it isn't, they don't use it. I mean, I don't know if you've ever watched photo editors work. Guy goes out, you know, knocks his brains out, climbs a mountain, goes down to the depths of the sea, and the photo editor just goes through them very rapidly. And if, as they used to say, if they don't grab them, it doesn't mean anything. I, I saw them throw out maybe a $10,000 job at life where a guy went someplace and didn't make any, you know, made a few pictures. Yeah. The pictures that were printed in life were, I've forgotten what the ratio, I once figured out, that all, you know, all, everything that poured into Life magazine, the news agencies and the, uh, uh, you know, their own staff and the freelancers and the agencies, I don't know, it was like 100,000 pictures a day. And then I counted the number of pictures that was in the Life issue and it always came out, I, if I, I can't remember exactly, but somewhere maybe between 150 and 200 pictures. So the amount of attrition was like... 10,000 to one or Let's more. Let's say just 10,000 pictures came in a day, you know, that were available. So that was 70,000 pictures every week, of which 150 were printed. And these were the best photographers around in that kind of photography. Huh. Now this is a bad slide, but this is Ache. Yeah, that's Ache. This is actually one of the nicer ones uh, for my money, but it's a slide. Oh, Ache is, again, a very favorite of mine, and I've tried to, you know, See, my whole way of thinking is very different from Coleman's, for instance. I don't think Coleman knows anything about photography because he hasn't seen the images. Coleman gets an idea and then tries to fit pictures into that idea. Um, What I've tried is to get every picture in every case of each photographer. I try to see everything. My interest is not in masterpieces, for instance. My interest is in how, what kind of seeing a photographer does, or what is the history of seeing in photography? As one aspect, I'm also interested in the cultural side, you know, how it relates to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, other things that were happening in history. But in the case of Ache, uh, well, I've tried to figure out, for instance, you know, what kind of organizations he, how did he organize his pictures? And it's tough. You know, you have to keep looking at the pictures, keep looking at the pictures. And you can't really write about it the way some people are writing about photography, because you really have to show large numbers of pictures. And yeah, that's it's like my lectures, you see, deal with large numbers of pictures. I'm reminded uh, when we were doing the work for Brett that there's been some articles written comparing Brett and Edward, yeah. which are based on a certain scanning that, in fact, you could 
prove just the opposite with a different cull from each of their words. Right, right. And that it's not as, at all as simple as, right. you know, that thing. Edward's a very good example, you see. I mean, you, you can make Edward Weston look like an absolutely lousy photographer by going through that Southern Trailways things, that whole All series. kinds of stuff, yeah, but he did that was a little... But he just did, you know. Or you can make them, you could cut down as was done, you know, for the books. Mm -hmm. Absolutely magnificent. And it depends who picks them out, too. Right, and you can make them absolutely magnificent in very different ways. So we, I have That's a couple right. of his. We'll get, this is a Cortez. Yeah, I know. And, well, uh, Cortez has never been my favorite photographer. I think I have a little more, a little growing respect for him simply because of the number of publications. But essentially, see, he's the kind of Hungarian schmaltz photographer that has never been my favorite particularly. So it's got this human little thing going yeah, on. Yeah, well, there, there's a little bit of a sentimental pathos, but uh, he's made some marvelous pictures. I like very much that one of the couple looking at something under a hole in the wall. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, all the distortion pictures, that are, which are now a book, you know, and I've always shown a couple of those, but I don't think he really quite pushed it. You know, it was a journalism thing that he did that day, and that was the end of it. And now it's getting overly, overwrought in the, you know, importance. Mm. You have to watch it. Mm -hmm. Well, Brassai, you know, from the first time I ever saw Brassai, he really sent me. See, I think he's a terrific photographer. Uh, the young people in the, the New York View you see is that Cortez is very important. Cortez was so bad that when he worked for, what was it, Vogue or Harper? He might have done some work for us. He worked for House and Garden, actually, for well, a long I know, time. Well, I know, but which one was that part of? The Hearst oh, newspapers, it, it's, I uh, think? It's Condé Nast. Condé Nast, right. They didn't let him do anything except in the interiors. Yeah. They didn't think much of him as a photographer. Now, he, he taught, or taught, he gave, you know, some told Brassai to, uh, you know, give an exposure for this, just like most people were taught photography. And Brassai is just terrific photographer to me. Even when it's sentimental, it's terrific. And uh, I just think they're, um, some of his images are among the most powerful in photography in terms of the portraiture that exists, or showing the milieu. Yeah, something that was unexplored. Cortez does feel a little like he got ripped off by Brassai. Well, he shouldn't. Brassai's a better photographer. <laughs> that's, which that's, is hard to take. Yeah, that's, you know. that'll do it. Yeah, well, this is Cartier-Bresson, and, you know, this is uh, really high-class uh, journalism, and uh, getting into the thing and being, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, well, like God that has his eye on every sparrow. Uh, you're not aware of the photographer particularly. The concept of the decisive moment comes in because, you know, it's only that small time as you see the expression on the woman's face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, I question very much the whole concept of the decisive moment. You can understand by now I question a lot about current ideas or mm -hmm. in the past. Now this is a way of getting a Burke White and also yeah. the first issue of life. I know. Uh, which you'll notice here, <laughs> my father was a charter subscriber when he was a college student in Ann Arbor, and that's why I, ha uh, I have a set of these, uh, which was nice. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. terrific. Uh, Margaret Burke White was just, you know, had been working for Fortune and Industry, and when life was formed, she was very capable, very gung-ho gal, tough, very, uh, you know, organized kind of person, and very eager to establish her reputation. Mm -hmm. And so she did this whole series, you know, the building of this dam, and uh, they're marvelous. Do you remember when the first time you had anything published in life was? No. Would have been before the war. Yeah. And obviously after 36, because yeah, this is the first issue. Yeah, but I didn't photojournalist things before life. There was a magazine. Right, you were already working by this time anyway. Here. Yeah, but there were other magazines that just dropped out. One in particular I worked for called Pictures. Uh, which I shot with the contacts up in northern Michigan or something, a one-room schoolhouse. And somewhere I had the negatives of those. But that hmm. was maybe 1934 or 5. five. Hmm. I'll have to look for that publication. Well, I don't think you will find it. It, was uh, it must be somewhere. It was just one or two issues, you know, and it was done by an advertising agency. 
and it didn't click right uh. away, you see. Hmm. Well, here's Kappa, you know, the Spanish soldier just after he's hit. And it's been, again, it illustrates journalism because this picture's been cropped 85 different ways. Well, which one was the picture? I like to see what he shot. Mm -hmm. This is pretty near the full frame, I think, yeah, here. Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it's it. also a marvelous illustration of recycling the photographs in the context of photographs. You take the same photographs, the same photograph you see put in different contexts, it has different meanings, which is what happened with this. Yeah. Now, here's a, a Walker Evans. Yes. Well, what's to say? I mean, Walker Evans had a way of seeing, and he kept seeing it that way. And uh, they're very rich, and uh, yeah, right. And that's what he does. And that's what he does. And he hardly and ever did anything Susan else. Susan Sontag says he's the best photographer of America, and I say she doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. She's been talking to Sarkowski too much. Huh? I don't know. No, I love Walker. You know, I'm a, yeah, oh, yeah. a friend of Walker, but uh, I don't think I don't like this idea of the best, the concept, of the best photographer. I think they're all different, you see, and you really can't make that judgment. You can make it if you want to, but it doesn't have any meaning. Best photographer for what? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, to do, you wouldn't send him to do certain things, obviously. Well, obviously, you wouldn't send Walker Evans to, you know, do a sight and fashion job. Anyway, here is Dorothea Lang, who certainly was the premier uh, photographer of the, of the Depression years. And, had a tremendous amount of energy and uh, worked as a photographer. Made several variations, for instance, of this right, photograph. The, the, the so which up. one was the one? And, you know, the whole concept of the decisive moment again comes up. She's working like everybody does. You make a number of pictures, you know, because you don't know which one's going to come out better for whatever unconscious or conscious reasons, you see. Yeah. Sounds easy enough. Well, All right. I was going to ask, you were explained about, I was just going to ask you if you had much contact with her in the 50s no. and, and 60s at all. No. I had more contact with Burke White in the 40s. Okay. It's an interesting um, article about this picture and about her in the Photography and Humanities book, her husband Paul Taylor. Yeah. Mm, I have seen it. Her just on the job. Her approach to... Her working pictures. method and making working this picture? Yeah. The whole working method of her in general. I recommend reading the essay. Hmm. It's actually an extract from the symposium at Wellesley College. Yeah. Here's Arthur Rothstein's one yeah, picture, I mean, as far as I can right. tell. Arthur Rothstein's been... Oh, he's serious. He's a very good technician. Uh, he made... You know, he was one of Stryker's pupils. And... Uh, uh, he never was a great photographer. He's a very uh, competent photojournalist, you know, ran the, the photo section at Look Magazine, and uh, he's a very nice guy, and now he's, you know, at Parade Magazine. And I like Arthur, and I used to see him when I went to New York. He was very friendly. Um, but uh, this, this photograph, and, you know, the one of the skull, which caused so much are in Congress are the kind of things that he's mainly known for. Uh, his, he never really had a style. Just did assignments, as it were. And well, they're very competent. I mean, he's a professional. Oh, yeah. But it isn't like, I think, like Walker Evans. Oh, certainly not. You know, or even Dorothea Lange, or Russell Lee, for that matter. Where would you locate yourself in terms of that, that idea? Oh, in terms I'm not in that spectrum at all. I didn't work long enough for them, you know, work in that. Uh, well, here's a little Bill different. Bill Brandt, you know, and I love Bill Brandt, one of the great photographers. It was quite a shock, you see, when he turned out those new distorted... Uh, the nudes? Nudes, you know, with the white, uh, the large white areas. But uh, I've had Brandt's book, you know, English at Home, and, uh, London at night mm -hmm. since the 30s and uh, see I, I've always linked Grassi and Bill Brandt together hmm. never linked Cortez and Bill Brandt I mean there's a power in Bill Brandt and a power in Grassi that simply sure. does not exist in Cortez now those are very personal you know opinions but I can demonstrate you see through 
pictures. The pictures. That that is true. Yeah. Yeah, there's a grittiness, as it were, almost right. to some of those things. A real kind of tough scene that doesn't exist exist in Cortez. Cortez is always, you know, when he makes cubist-oriented pictures, they're rather thin and weak. Yeah. When he, you know, does picture stories, they're sort of sweet. Yeah, he's best at that type of a thing. That's right. It? It's Hungarian pictorialism as seen through some very Deleuze cubist uh, times of the 20s. Mm -hmm. Do you ever think of Brasani in relationship to Duano, Robert Duano? Robert Duano is also a very cheap photographer. I mean, uh, his uh, humor is childish and obvious and boring, ultimately. Whereas Brasai's pictures will live forever. But Duano maybe will have one or two pictures that people will smirk at of, uh, you know, the people looking at them nude in the window or something. It's very cornball. Uh, it is interesting because, I mean, you know, you mentioned some people that... I'm giving it to you straight, you know, I'm not... Uh, mm -hmm. There's your tape. Uh, did we do the other side? This is the first side, isn't it? I think we're starting fresh. I think we ended. But if to be on the safe side, you can start another one. Well, not me. <laughs> I can't it. Let's uh, go here and see if there's anything around this. Okay, side two. And this is Bernie's Abbott, Bernie of course. Bernie's Abbott, yeah. Cortez lives right about where these buildings used to be right now at, uh, this mm -hmm. is 4, 6, and 8 Fifth Avenue. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, I've always liked Bernice's pictures. Uh, I thought her portraits were dull, which now seem to be getting some attention. The ones from the 20s that you mm -hmm. did, the James Joyce and yeah, so on. Yeah, very straight, simple kinds of things. Uh, but her uh, architecture is something else again. With great love and care and hard work. Uh, see, I think these pictures have a feeling that a painter like Hopper has. A sense of place and a sense of the light goes with certain times and certain kind of materials that you recognize. Yeah, Hopper is often mentioned in relation to Bernice, actually. By Life magazine did a thing on Changing New York when she was doing it and, you know, mentioned Hopper as a, yeah. as a reference. Oh. Of course, she photographed Hopper, too, which is... Yeah. Well, but it's in that period, and so it's not unlikely that they both would have somewhat of the same way of seeing. Right, like we were saying about uh, some of the other things there. It's just an idea that was out in the present in the culture at that right. time. Right. That's what you always have to try and differentiate. And here's, you know, Man Ray and the kind of marvelous object manipulation by the medium. And so this is solarized, and he really got that licked. And being a surrealist, you know, he had a leg up. Uh, he was very object conscious and very unconscious about, uh, you know, changing the meaning of commonplace objects into something mysterious, which is what this kind of portrait does. It's reminiscent of Metz, Renaissance, many Renaissance figures, but it's all changed because of the, you know, peculiar reversal of the shadows. Mm -hmm. And this is Moholy, and Moholy is, you know, a very mixed bag. Uh, one, the very, on an intellectual basis, without a doubt, the smartest perceiver of photography of the 20s. Just nobody like him in busting open new ideas and codifying tendencies in photography. As a creative photographer himself, uh, you know, he's very much affected by the painting and the collage making of many people like Taplin and the Russians and, you know, Hannah Hoke probably, who both affects him, I think, and is affected by him. I mean, there's a great interchange of ideas then. Um, That's what the first Bauhaus was all about, in a sense, as a yeah, historical phenomenon. Right, but the way he uses the, the simple lines to create deep space and the diminishing size of objects to create a space, you know, denotes a very high order of understanding of the pictorial vocabularies. And this is, you see, what photographers generally lack. They really haven't any bright ideas since P.H. Robinson wrote his book, which, you know, was dead uh, in 1750. Yeah. 1750? 
yeah, all of his ideas were taken from other books that were written in, say, 1750. Well, there's you know, Barbara Morgan, who was the Flash, multiple Flash, and uh, she had a good subject. And I have an earlier book of hers. Uh, you know, they ran a summer camp for kids. Well, she did a book about kids. Yeah, well, that was their uh, camp. Did you have much contact with her or with Willard? 